Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 350th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and it's my great honor to welcome a guest today who is, or at least has been, out of this world. A living legend, a bona fide American hero, and a truly historic figure. He's a graduate of West Point, third in the class of 1951, who served as a fighter jet pilot in the U.S. Air Force during the Korean War, participating in 66 combat missions and destroying two enemy aircraft, and who then returned stateside and earned a Doctor of Science degree from MIT in January 1963, writing his thesis about manned orbital rendezvous, with the hope that it might help him to one day become an astronaut, like his friend Ed White, at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, which had been established in 1958. And sure enough, just a few months later, in October 1963, he was part of the third group invited to join the space program. His contributions to NASA are numerous and varied, from pioneering underwater training methods to establishing a record for time spent walking in space during a single mission, five and a half hours, during the November 1966 Gemini 12 mission the last of the Gemini missions that paved the way for the Apollo missions. But he is, of course, best known as the lunar module pilot on Apollo 11, the first manned space flight to land on the moon, an achievement described by the New York Times as, quote, arguably the most extraordinary feat in human history, close quote, and who on July 20th, 1969, at the age of 39, with an unprecedented audience of some 600 million people watching on TV all around the world, became the second of only 12 men in history, all Americans, to walk on the moon, a mere 20 minutes after the first man, Neil Armstrong. He's a 1969 recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and now, at the age of 90, an Emmy nominee, along with his sole surviving Apollo 11 colleague Michael Collins, for Best Cinematography for a Nonfiction Program the excellent CNN documentary Apollo 11. I'm talking, of course, about Dr. Edwin Eugene Aldrin Jr., better known as Buzz Aldrin. But first, I was joined by the director, producer, and film editor of the documentary Apollo 11, who is himself nominated for two Emmys, Best Directing for a Documentary slash Nonfiction Program and Best Picture Editing for Nonfiction Programming. Having already won for his work on the film a Peabody Award, the Producers Guild of America awards his prize for Best Producer of a Documentary Theatrical Motion Picture. The Critics' Choice Documentary awards his prize for Best Documentary Feature and Best Editing. A Special Jury Award for Editing from the Sundance Film Festival. The Best Editing Prize of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. And the American Cinema Editors awards his Best Edited Documentary Feature Prize. Todd Douglas Miller. Todd, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to see you, and congratulations on two Emmy nominations for yourself, and I believe six for this great project that I first had the opportunity to see after we finally kicked Kanye West out of the IMAX <laughs> screening room, <laughs> if you remember. Uh, that was quite an amazing thing to see this at in the ideal format at IMAX headquarters and uh, instantly became my favorite of the year. And uh, so I'm glad to get to talk to you almost uh, almost a year later, probably. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact date, but it's been a long journey for you. When did this, when did the idea of doing an Apollo 11 documentary first even occur to you? 
Well, first off, thanks for having me and, and thanks for all you do uh, for the industry. Um, and the, the idea uh, really came out of a short film that we did for Apollo 17, which was the last mission to go to the moon. Uh, we had done that as a short film and it was released through CNN uh, and we were exposed to a lot of archival materials with just not NASA, but all the Apollo missions and then also a lot of uh, things that were uh, captured in large format in the late 60s. So uh, that really uh, and that it, we knew of some large format. We didn't know, you know, what the final product was going to be, of course. But um, uh, so we were kind of getting into that. I was working into another project uh, on another project, another feature length uh, documentary. And that this one just kind of slowly took over. So we were looking at um, you know, just little snippets of some large format, but it was mainly all the 35 and 16 millimeter uh, archival materials. And it just kind of got addictive uh, to work on it. Um, and it kind of slowly took over over the course of a couple months, uh, several years ago. And then uh, Courtney Sexton with CNN Films called me and said, you know, we want a moon landing uh, film for the 50th anniversary. And uh, that really kind of kicked off uh, everything. So with their backing uh, and kind of the team that we had put together to do the short film, uh, we were really off and running. Um, the stars really aligned, no pun intended, but, you know, we had <laughs> we had some new uh, scanner technology that we were working with um, through uh, our post-production facility, Final Frame, that was taking uh, everything from 8mm film all the way up to, you know, IMAX quality film, 70mm, uh, and scanning it in resolutions that hadn't uh, been, uh, hadn't happened before. Uh, so we were going all the way up to 16K in some instances. Uh, in the middle of that, the National Archives called and said, uh, it was actually an email, uh, I'll never forget it, and uh, said, you know, we have this large format, uh, these reels sitting here, we have no idea what's on them. They say Apollo 11, um, uh, but, you know, we could uh, get some test reels up there. Uh, and once we put the first test reels up, we knew we had, you know, something very special. It's kind of one of those lock the door moments um, and just draw on the on the floor. Uh, and that kicked off, you know, a couple years of, uh, you know, uh, working with the material. Uh, archiving it, getting it, you know, prepped to, so I can edit it, put it into the film, uh, working with, you know, uh, the team we put together and then working with the astronauts and their families to, you know, to um, try to tell the, you know, uh, a story that had been told a million times, but maybe uh, just kind of focus on the minute details and some of the most exciting aspects of, of their, of their, uh, you know, journey. Absolutely. Well, before I drill down on some of those points that you raised. I want to just go backwards for a minute. Eastern Michigan University, then film school at the Motion Picture Institute near Detroit. When you came out of that training, entering the world of being a, a professional filmmaker, was the goal always to make documentaries or were you thinking in terms of narrative at the beginning? No, I consider myself a fiction filmmaker. That's the funny thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am, you know, it's funny. We were, we did the thing last year and, um, Asif Kapadia and I talk all the time and, you know, Asif and I think we share, we're like-minded in that we don't consider ourselves documentarians, <laughs> you know, we approach cinema in a very, um, you know, and, and that it really doesn't matter. You know, these terms are kind of indistinguishable. Um, and I approached Apollo 11 in that way. Um, for me, 
it was just the cinematographer's role and my job on, on set was already done. So it was just, you know, <laughs> composing it all. But a lot of times you're looking at, uh, you know, different takes, uh, you know, and, but you're just using real people as opposed to actors. But to answer your question, um, when I went to, I was basically a year long trade school. Uh, I really wanted to be a film critic. I wanted to write about film. Uh, but then once I got cameras in my hands, I, I thought that was a little better. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it was a lot easier to do document, you know, when I was poor, I was broke and didn't have any money and it was just easier to, uh, work in the documentary realm. You didn't have to hire back then we were still shooting on film. So you didn't have to hire, you know, a big crew. Uh, and it was just a simpler entry point into, uh, into the production world. Um, but I did do, uh, uh, was basically a short film um, with uh, three actors, uh, one location. We shot it over a week. Uh, that was a fiction film uh, called Scaring the Fish uh, back in, mm -hmm. we shot in 2004, 2005 with Anthony Rapp and Max Casella and Chance Pinnell. So I've never really, you know, thought of myself as a documentary filmmaker. I love it. <laughs> I'll always do them. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, we're working on, uh, you know, we, uh, a fiction thing too and another documentary at the same time. So, we kind of, you know, the, the small team that I work with, we kind of see it as, uh, you know, playing both sides of the fence, I guess. Sure. And was editing always sort of a specialty of yours? Because I know that one of the things that obviously it's it's been a focus of the work on Apollo 11, because as you say, you're working with found footage, but it seems like you really have distinguished yourself as a film editor for a while. And I just wonder how that became a particular, you know, skill set of yours. Yeah, when I was in school, I just I, I spent a lot of time in, uh, you know, in post rooms and my first job, uh, I was a lowly PA, you know, um, you know, taking out the trash at a production company and, uh, you know, cleaning the toilets. And um, and I remember going to some of the post houses back then. And it was really the transition between film and uh, and video back then. You had the Sony Cine Alta coming out and the Panasonic Vericam. And that was uh, a real eye-opening experience because I sometimes they would send me because it was kind of you know be late at night they all the older you know more established people uh producers and directors had families and lives and I would just sign up for anything oh you want me to run you know a quarter inch tape over to an editor in an online house you know in Detroit <laughs> sign me up from there and I would stay right. all night and just be a fly on the wall and I really grew to love editing um through that experience and seeing those rooms change from uh, what took three or four people to run an online room uh, to uh, one person, you know, down to uh, just doing, you know, Final Cut or, you know, uh, uh, an Avid. And I really like the idea of that, just being stuck in a dark room and just kind of creating, you know, the magic of it. And that's really what they were doing. And I wanted to be a part of that. And um, so that kind of got my foot in the door. I always enjoy being on a set. I always enjoy shooting as well. Um, as you know, I'm very much into the technical aspects of filmmaking, um, but I find that the most creative space uh, in storytelling is actually in the edit room when you're there, you know, um, and you can just be by yourself with the footage. Uh, so that's kind of always been my approach and, you know, in the last, you know, several films uh, um, and just uh, bringing in people because I, I I really enjoy collaboration uh, and I have, you know, my small team. So just showing them cuts, uh, you know, my music composer, Matt Morton is very, uh, he's an integral part of what I do along with sound designer. So, and I trust those guys to give me creative feedback too. So it's almost, 
I could switch off my, you know, editor hat and directing hat uh, with those guys and we kind of work, you know, very well together. Um, but it all started just, you know, having, it, seeing other people do the work and seeing how impactful it is in the final product. And that's what really right. got me into it. So for any editor, for any filmmaker to be told that there's a massive amount of footage that's never been really used before from such a historic event as Apollo 11 uh, and everything surrounding it. On the one hand, I'm sure it's exciting. On the other hand, I'm sure it's daunting to now have to piece together 50-year-old stuff that has has not been categorized, has not been, um, you know, in any way synced. I know that was another big challenge for you guys to get. You have a lot of audio, which is great, because I guess each of these people in Mission Control and the astronauts, everybody had their own audio tracks, as I understand it, but nothing synced with with each other, let alone with footage. So just as you actually set about piecing this all together, how did, what, how did you do that? It's such a, such a monumental challenge. Yeah, I mean, my, my job was uh, really as kind of a conduit to a really specialized team um, and just kind of managing that. So in conjunction with uh, Tom Peterson, my producing partner, uh, who really managed, uh, the, you know, this 10,000 hours plus of audio that we were given, as you mentioned, everyone in Mission Control had a headset. Um, but that once it, you know, uh, before it got to him, it really came through our archive producer, Stephen Slater. Uh, and then Ben Feist, uh, who now works for NASA, but at the time was just, you know, a tech guy working at an ad agency. Um, so, and Ben really did the uh, roll up the sleeves work of cleaning all of that up. And then Steven uh, did the, the roll up the sleeves job of syncing all of that with all this 16 millimeter footage that was captured inside of, uh, of Mission Control and some large format footage. Uh, but by the time I got it, uh, and the, of course the, the, I mentioned final frame, the post-production facility, um, did all of the, uh, uh, scanning of all of this, uh, material. And, and then they would give it to me so I could actually work with it. Cause once it came off the scanner, it was such high quality that I couldn't even use it in an edit suite. So really? I was kind of like not only the conduit, I guess, but kind of the funnel for all of it. Um, and then, and then my job, uh, was just time consuming, you know, it was just go through everything, uh, and really working with Tom, uh, we would go through and he would, uh, there was no transcript. So he would really transcode everything, uh, and then give me kind of the highlights of, oh, this might be of interest. Um, and many, many things in the film came out of that process. So, uh, for instance, there was a, a music track that got played during the mission. Uh, uh, and Tom found that, uh, just literally listening to, uh, you know, the, the tapes, and uh, some of the other, um, you know, uh, things. So, but it was very useful for me as an editor. I could, I had a transcript. I could go through everything. I could jump to every single, you know, any point in the mission. Um, and you know, it, there's, it was almost like a script had already been written. You know, we went to the moon uh, many times, uh, and they did the same types of things every single time. So you kind of knew the highlights of what was going to come. Uh, so on Apollo 10, there was kind of, you know, uh, that was really the dress rehearsal. It was like, you know, the rough draft of what Apollo 11 was going to be. So 
Um, for me, just kind of when I was conceptualizing the film and the structure of it, I knew where all kind of my plot point one was going to happen and plot point two and, you know, and where act three began. Like I, I kind of knew it. So, um, it, and because they were so NASA, so, um, you know, succinct with how they do things and how ordered they are, it followed very closely to laying out a film mm -hmm. and, you know, and trying to do it in under two hours. Was there one discovery of footage or audio that, had never really been used in all these years where you perked up in particular and you're like, you know, I, I can't believe we've just found this. Yeah, there, there was, there was a bunch of them. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one, uh, the, the one that, uh, still gets me cause I still get emails about it and I talk to people and it's really like the really, um, you know, uh, technical guys, uh, will, will call me, um, about it. But, uh, we were, in my office, I kind of laid out all the um, photographs that the astronauts, three astronauts had taken once they got into space. And there's over a thousand images that they captured, which really isn't that much for the Apollo missions. Um, you know, they, for 17, it was, you know, almost 7,000. So or something astronomical like that. But yeah. for Apollo 11, it was over a thousand. So we print them all out and just trying to understand where the orientation of the spacecraft was, was important in that we were trying, you know, we, we had graphics, you know, that, uh, put together to try to give the audience a sense of where you were going to, you know, where, where you were in space. And it didn't kind of match up, uh, that they would take this photograph if the spacecraft was oriented this way, um, and kind of reading. I mean, we were really getting into the weeds on some of this stuff, but, um, so we challenged, uh, Bill Berry, who's the chief historian over at NASA and some of our other private historians, uh, Robert Perlman, uh, who's down, uh, lives close to JSC down in Houston. Um, and anytime we had kind of a question like that, we'd put, uh, the pros at NASA and our independent guys on a parallel path and see what they came up with. And, uh, in this case, it was, we had always thought, and this was depicted like in every space film ever made, uh, where the capsule was kind of shot out of a, if you can imagine a bullet shot out of a gun, it was kind of rotating towards the moon. Um, and, uh, but that didn't make any sense from the photographic evidence we had. So, uh, we looked at, um, I asked Bill Barry if he'd do some research a month later, he came back, he went into the archives at the MIT flight dynamics group who developed all the systems. And they found that the command module stack with the limb, the lunar module on the bottom actually spun like a top uh, on the way. So they were, it was almost in, in the film, uh, you hear one of the, the capsule communicators radio up and say, oh, it's like you guys are in a rotating restaurant. So it was actually spinning <laughs> like this on its way out to the moon. And then it was pointed celestial south spinning uh, this way on the way out. And that made all the difference in the world. So suddenly, even though you're in space and, you know, 3D really is doesn't matter where you are, the orientation, but yeah. it made sense that, uh, you know, shots of the moon and other things that they were seeing, uh, uh, were captured in the way that they were. Uh, and so that, That's awesome. even though it was, you know, it was important, it was very important to us. I wanted to know, you know, when they slingshot it around the moon, um, you know, a lot of the photographs that are depicted in previous films just show it like it's, you know, uh, it was, you know, kind of, uh, like a, almost a crescent like this, whereas they were coming around and what the astronauts actually witnessed would have been, you know, uh, how we depicted it in, in the, yes. um, in the film. And so that, those kind of little discoveries, I always got really excited about anytime I got like feedback from Bill and his group at NASA with, you know, exactly what was going on and wow, we never even knew about this. You know, that yeah. was really exciting for everyone. That's amazing. Yeah. And I guess if you ever really got stuck with a question, you had the opportunity to and took advantage of the opportunity to 
pick the brains of two individuals who were actually there, Buzz and Michael Collins. Uh, can you just share, you know, were they, they made themselves uh, available to kind of provide input or answer questions and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, once we discovered the large format footage, uh, you know, I had no intention of reaching out to them at all. Um, uh, mainly because our film takes place. I wanted, I didn't want their 50 year, you know, judgment or 50 years of, uh, you know, revisionist history to be impacted with the way that we wanted to tell the story, which was in the moment. So any, I didn't think that they could contribute really, um, Mm -hmm. initially because, I just wanted whatever was in the photographic evidence that we had in the archival to just rule the day and that'd be it. Um, and I was, you know, fingers crossed they'd be happy with the end product and maybe I could connect with them at some point. Um, but uh, once we found the large format footage, uh, in fact, the first phone call I made was to, um, uh, to uh, Neil Armstrong's sons, uh, uh, Mark and Rick. Um, and I actually went out to Ohio and showed them, uh, you know, the footage, uh, where they live. And, uh, at the time we had just done some tests, uh, and then reached out to Michael Collins and, and Buzz Aldrin. And, you know, they were just so gracious, all of them and the families, uh, it just wasn't them. It was their daughters, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, their family members who, cause they went through it all too. And, uh, there was a funny story, Michael Collins. Um, we, anytime we had a sequence that, uh, I thought needed to have their eyeballs on it. Um, uh, our good friend Zarth, uh, Barish that runs the theaters down at, um, that national air and space, uh, the IMAX theaters, uh, we would go and test it. So we did some testing, um, you know, the launch of a Saturn five rocket on Apollo 11. That's a big one I want to get right. So, <laughs> you know, we had those guys come in, um, and, uh, you know, I'm nervous, the whole team, we brought in any, everybody, uh, we were so nervous. And I remember at the end, um, saying uh, to Michael Collins, you know, what do you think? You know, is there any you know, feedback? And he said, you know, well, how the hell should I know? I was on the inside of the capsule, you know. <laughs> so um, it was important to have in that sense, you know, getting like the Armstrong, uh, you know, boys, their feedback because they witnessed it, you know, as kids and what um, and, and they'd seen, you know, subsequent uh, Apollo 11 uh, rockets and, and historians as well. Um, and Buzz was invaluable too, uh, Buzz Aldrin, as far as, um, uh, there's a scene in the film where they notice, uh, a, uh, eclipse of the, of the moon, solar eclipse and judging the distance of that. Uh, and did we get it right? Is that what it looked like? Uh, so it was really important, uh, uh, for him to give his feedback on that. Um, another one was uh, the alarms that are going off as they're landing. He's the only one alive that was there that could tell us. Uh, and again, usually when it's depicted in a film, you hear it going off in the cabin and this is, you know, really, you know, uh, annoying, you know, thing. And you go, oh my God, they must, you know, are they, you know, are they going to make it? But we actually got the kilohertz tone uh, that was going through his headset and he was the one that told us it was in his headset. It wasn't going Going off in the cabin because that would have, you know, that would have yeah, been distracting. That doesn't happen, you know, um, <laughs> right. you know, when you're flying a plane. So uh, just little details like that was uh, important. And playing that for him, well, you got too many beeps in there. You know, it was more spaced out. It wasn't that intense. You know, you can scale back a right. little. Uh, so that was invaluable getting their feedback. Amazing. And and just for people who are listening, basically, I think that the footage is all essentially almost all organic as as you came upon it uh but what you're talking about is you guys had to you enhance the soundscape to make it a full uh fully immersive experience where you know 
that if you're just hearing it through somebody's headset, it's not the same as when you guys can kind of amplify it or fine tune it a little bit. Right. That's where you would. Yeah. There was no, you know, if people watch the film, there's no, there was no sound on anything. Uh, so Mm -hmm. we either had to sync it up from original sources, get it from other sources or, you know, enhance it, uh, and try to duplicate exactly what the original sound was. Uh, but you know, 90% of the film is using original uh, sound that's just been cleaned up. And hats off again to Eric Milano, our sound designer, and, and Brian Eimer, uh, uh, the IMAX mixer. Uh, they just did a fantastic job. So last question is, in addition to yourself as one of the nominees for Apollo 11 at the Emmys, it was caught a lot of people by pleasant surprise to find out that 50 years after the or 51 years, I guess, after the Apollo 11 mission, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins are now Emmy nominees for cinematography. And I wonder if you can just set up the next part of this uh, episode by explaining for people who may not know what the source of different footage was, you know, what did Michael and Buzz actually film and what, you know, what in your view makes them worthy of this recognition all these years later? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take much research uh, to know that uh, all of the astronauts, um, particularly the ones on Apollo 11, did a massive amount of training of documenting uh, what they were doing. So it doesn't make any sense if you're just going to go to the moon and not take a camera with you and document Mm -hmm. it. Um, So uh, when you watch all the training, uh, you know, footage that they went through, um, they spent an amazing amount of time uh, training with Hasselblad uh, still cameras. They had numerous uh, versions and different ones, uh, not only in the command module, but on the lunar module. Uh, They were also running TV, uh, they call it slow scan back then uh, cameras that did downlink so all the way on the moon and the moon surface and all the way back they were uh you know broadcasting tv so that didn't run actual video cameras and then um probably most important they had uh, these 16 millimeter uh, westinghouse cameras that uh ran 16 millimeter film and again for anyone that's shot film you know how difficult it can be uh so there's in the audio uh they were constantly talking about mission control you know what's my inclination of the sun what you know f-stop should i be on what lens should I have on? Uh, And I don't think that you could tell me that there's a better shot in cinematic history than what Buzz Aldrin shot out of window number two on the lunar module, landing on another world for the first time. Uh, It was just an extraordinary shot. He had to flip on the camera, you know, he mounted it. Uh, It's it's just incredible. Um, And the same could be said for Michael Collins. uh, When they fired the engine uh, off the surface of the moon uh, in the lunar module, Michael Collins in the command module, which is orbiting the moon, uh, had the dock with them. Uh, and he flipped on a camera and got one of the most amazing shots. We show it completely unedited in the film. Uh, it's almost seven minutes long and it's, uh, just a gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, shot. And it's, those two shots are my favorite, uh, shots in cinematic history. So if, um, I, you know, there's a reason why these guys on Apollo 11 were honorary members of the American Society of Cinematographers or ASC members. Um, and I think they should get Oscars uh, for what they did. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And I'm glad they're getting Emmys and any other cinematography award. Uh, I think the, they, they rightfully deserve it. Awesome. Well, Todd, thank you so much for doing this. And congrats again. It's a, it's a movie that people should, if they haven't seen it yet, get the biggest screen you can find and watch it on that. And, um, hopefully it'll be back in 
theaters for future anniversaries. And, and I know it's in some IMAXs, I think, at museums. And when we can finally leave our homes, just uh, make sure to seek it out, listeners, because it is special. Todd, thank you again. Thanks so much, Scott. And now, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Buzz Aldrin. Dr. Aldrin, it's such an honor to speak with you, and, and congratulations on your Emmy nomination. Uh, before we get into anything else, though, I just want to ask, how are you holding up during this crazy time in America? I think you have more experience with quarantine than most of us do. <laughs> well, yeah, I had two other guys with me, such and, and somebody who fixed the, uh, the meals for us. I got somebody who fixes my meals. Uh, she's better looking than the one we had in the <laughs> quarantine trailer. So you wake up, I guess, on July 28th, and you find out more than 50 years after Apollo 11, suddenly you're, you and Michael Collins are Emmy nominees. Can, could you wrap your head around that one? Well, I've expected this uh, all along since uh, 1969, <laughs> July 28th. Right. So I tell you, uh, one of the three of us is really the uh, the uh, photographer. And unfortunately, he's not with us to take all the kudos. Uh, he kind of left us. I tried to do the best I could uh, with Neil, and Mike was kind of hiding up in orbit, (laughs) so uh, he could only uh, photograph us until we left or until we got back in again. And, of course, he had to uh, dust us off (laughs) from all the lunar dust when we got back in again. But I'm not taking any... uh, any credits from him. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't consider myself a uh, a awardee for the space program at this point. We'll stick to Apollo 11. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, I did understand, though, that the lunar module landing sequence was something that you filmed out the window with a with a 16 millimeter camera is that true well the 16 millimeter camera was at the right window and it really didn't uh, take pictures of the touchdown it was geared to take pictures of uh, of neil after he got down to the surface and was co- collecting the contingency uh, sample. We had other cameras that were uh, were taking pictures of the final uh, approach and the uh, the dust and the shadows and the uh, the touchdown, but not that sixteen millimeter. Right now, for for someone who is now an Emmy-nominated cinematographer, I think you did uh, in one interview say that you made one it, one mistake that you kind of regret, and and maybe if this is true, it'll be it's kind of funny. Did you forget to turn the camera back on after you guys were were leaving the moon? No, uh, no, we had the camera on as we departed. There wasn't too much to take pictures of. Mm-hmm. But the more contested was 
was the camera or was the uh, landing radar and the rendezvous radar on at the same time that we made powered descent. Now, of course, the checklist said we've got to have the landing radar to feed into the computer your uh, altitude and altitude rate. But Dr. Rendezvous from MIT <laughs> sure didn't want to uh, have anything that I interrupt the rendezvous if we had to abort. So I wanted uh, the data coming from the rendezvous radar and the landing radar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, little did I know that that was too much for the computer to handle. And so my, uh, my lack of awareness turned on some uh, program alarms uh, throughout the descent. But there was one very, very sharp guy in mission control who was able to, uh, to determine that there was that uh, momentary computer overload. So he said, uh, uh, we're going that flight. And <laughs> when we got down to uh, the lower attitude, and and had a program twelve oh one instead of twelve oh two. Well, he said we're going that one too. So we touched down, and as soon as the uh, probes from the landing gear touch the ground and throw a micro switch, it turns uh, a light on uh, in front of me that says contact light. And so actually, the first words from the lunar surface were contact light, engine stop, and a few other words. <laughs> and a little bit later, Neil got to uh, come up with his classic that I wish I had, <laughs> uh, Houston Tranquility Base here. The eagle has landed. Yes, yes. Now, your first words on the moon were were almost, I guess you could say, a little bit uh, of disappointment at the whole thing. I think, you know, I wondered if you, you know, to call it magnificent desolation, w- did you find yourself even surprised to be saying those words after such a long trip? Or was it just a bit of a letdown that there wasn't more going on there? No, no, no. Uh, Neil described uh, in terms of the uh, upper desert, and he actually used the word magnificent, isn't it? Now, I looked out, and there wasn't a damn thing growing. It was just (laughs) rolling craters with absolutely no sign of life. So magnificent isolation were the two combinations of words that I that I felt really covered the extreme, the uh, the utter worldly magnificence of two human beings being there. But I don't really think we could have found any spot on Earth more desolate than Tranquility Base was. 
Right. So for you, 50 years after that amazing adventure, what was it like to watch footage that they had kind of, I guess, misplaced or, or just put away for decades? All of, all of this footage from the Apollo 11 mission in the documentary Apollo 11, when you saw Apollo 11, the documentary, what, what was that like for you? Well, I think all the people that were able to dust off things and, and find these films are just to be uh, congratulated. Such a mass of people gathered around. Now, these days, they would have been looking at television uh, much closer to the rocket. I was kind of surprised when I saw the people, when I saw the movies of the people on the, on the beach, that the rocket was so far away, you, you wouldn't get a real good sense of uh, the engine ignition, not as good as you would, uh, would these days. So I think it was well worth it for all the thousands of people that came out to see that. Mm-hmm. It obviously set some kind of a record we went out there in a trailer from the crew quarters, and when we got to the uh, erector that held the rocket, while the three of us got out, uh, along with the technician, and we went up the elevator, and it stopped before it got all the way to the top, and so I was let off about... Uh, 30, 40 feet below the uh, the walkway that went from the elevator stop to the command module. So I had to wait there until uh, Neil and Mike got put into the spacecraft because the, uh, uh, the very disciplined pad leader, Guncher Vent, didn't want all three of us up there at the same time. So I got to stay by myself for about five minutes, at least maybe 10, all by myself, standing (laughs) there next to that rocket, giving off frost uh, fumes from the ice cold uh, uh, liquid uh, hydrogen and oxygen. And damned if the sun wasn't coming up at just that time, <laughs> and I'm not saying out loud, but to myself, hey, Buzz, you gotta remember this. This is fantastic. Yes. Leading up to to that, you know, just a, a amazing week in your life. Had you ever had second thoughts about staying with NASA? I know you'd done so much work to get there, but then once you where once you were there, there was just, I know there had been tragedy all around you that, you know, I, as I understand it, that you might not have been a part of the Gemini program, if not for one accident. And then the order shuffling that resulted from Apollo one is what led to Apollo 11 being possible. So I, and I know you were very close with Ed White, who was one of the people who, you know, was so like, did, did at any point, did you have, Second thoughts no, about well, it, uh, important more than anyone else. He was a year behind me at West Point, 
we were both on the track team and and he'd gone through the test pilot school and uh, and I had not. Uh, however, I got my doctor's degree and uh, studied techniques of uh, bringing two spacecraft together, rendezvous. So I became branded by the jealous Navy test pilots as Dr. Rendezvous. <laughs> and I not always in total respect. Uh, but yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I was actually an Air Force officer in the experiments office in Houston for the NASA program. And I had applied in 1962, the same year that Ed White uh, applied and he was selected and I was not. But uh, I kind of felt that, well, sure, being a test pilot's fine, but having some smarts of to know where you're going and what you're going to do, uh, which I thought I got from MIT. Mm-hmm. I think so. I began lobbying in a way, letting letting the people down in Houston know just how clever I was, and whether that worked or not. At least I got a call in uh, mid-October uh, from Dick Dick Slayton, and uh, the next month uh, JFK was assassinated. Uh, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. So that kind of put a different motivation or slant on the program. But uh, but because of Ed White's involvement in Germany 4, I went down there for that launch. And of course, I had known he and his wife, Pat. We were in the same squadron in Germany, and we represented our squadron in uh, NATO gunnery mm-hmm. competition uh, over in Europe. So we really got very close. We were on the track team, went down to Madison Square Garden to compete for West Point. Ed was in the high hurdles, and I was a, a pole vaulter. Ah. So I jumped a little higher than he did. <laughs> So, you know, everyone asks you, uh, understandably, about Apollo 11, but I, I, I want to ask you about uh, Gemini 12 because, you know, you in that mission established the record for time spent walking in space. I know five and a half hours. And I wanted to ask you, as a guy who writes for a uh, Hollywood publication, do you feel that any movie has really captured what that what spacewalking is actually like. I think about gravity and so many that have tried to depict it, but have you, have you seen it done well ever? Well, we have trouble with uh, some of the uh, crew members not, not being able to maintain a, a good position uh, when, when they were outside the spacecraft. And, and that included uh, Germany. 10 and 11. So some engineers from Baltimore had been experimenting in a swimming pool at uh, 
oh, I forget the name of the boys' school, with underwater weighted down with weights around your legs and, and arms to establish a neutral buoyancy. And that sounded uh, very appropriate and, and clever to me. I do remember that there are a couple of other skeptical astronauts who said, uh, well, how can you possibly simulate a vacuum up in space and, and the gravity up there by, by doing something underwater with all the viscosity and, uh, and still uh, all the pressure that you've got and still the gravity. But, but being a scuba diver for nine years, I certainly recommended or uh, recognized the great merit in doing that. So we instituted uh, neutral buoyancy for the beginning of the training of Gemini 9, and that didn't go too well. No, I don't think we had neutral buoyancy, but I know that uh, the pilot on Gemini 9 just got way overheated. Mm-hmm. Later, later become my, became my backup for the EVA on Gemini 12, which was split into three different EVAs, and it was all that I expected. It mm-hmm. was uh, uh, quite creative and uh, would enable only one foot in the restraint and to lean back and to move around with great control. Uh, and so that was the pioneering of neutral buoyancy and for every spacewalk or EVA since then, we've always concentrated on, uh, on neutral buoyancy. Yes. So yes. I felt for being a being an underwater uh, aficionado and scuba diver that that was uh, quite a good contribution to uh, to the business of spaceflight. Uh, in addition to the method of, of bringing a spacecraft to a proper position, approaching another one. Absolutely. And that had worked so well in the Gemini program that there was a, uh, an engineer who kind of took up the uh, cause of concentric orbit rendezvous for the moon. And looking backwards, there were two individuals who contributed to the success of Apollo in the maneuvering. The first was John Hubold, a Langley Research Center, a very smart engineer who proposed lunar orbit rendezvous where before going down to the surface and coming back, there would be a rendezvous in lunar orbit. Now, the rendezvous itself, or bringing together the spacecraft, was the contribution that that I made. Yes. So I like to feel that, that John and I really contributed 
very uh, significantly to the basic success of the steps leading to a landing. Absolutely. And uh, I've always wondered uh, ahead of ahead of the Apollo 11 mission, did you, Neil and Michael Collins, uh, ever discuss, were you ever kind of candid with each other about what you thought the chances were of a successful lunar landing and of successfully returning to Earth? Did you kind of talk in terms of percentages or anything like that? Gee, I... The number comes into mind. I, I, I can't say that uh, that we would go back and uh, and verify that, but I think maybe sixty percent. Right now, I'm uh, investigating in general terms what would happen if the circuit breaker that had broken off the engine arm circuit breaker. Mm-hmm that had broken off and that I later used uh, a felt tip pen uh, at the right time to push uh, the region of the circuit breaker in Mm -hmm. and it engaged. Now, suppose it had not. Well, we could have tried again two hours later when Mike Collins comes around again, and maybe a day later, we're going to run out of oxygen and electrical power. So if you can't get electrical power to the engine, you're staying on the moon. You're not uh, coming back home. Oh, my God. Now, what happens? Well, presumably, the backup crew the system would rush another rocket and get the backup crew within a couple of months up there and they would be able to bring back some rocks and a couple of pieces of evidence like a broken circuit breaker (laughs) and a pen. Right. Now those two items are symbolically very significantly associated with the trials and tribulations. That's probably not the best word since much more serious than that, but but we lost three crewmen uh, on Apollo 1 mm-hmm. and managed to, uh, to, to overcome that tragedy. And, uh, of course, space is not a trouble-free environment and and I thought well if somebody's going to perish on the moon why not Neil and I mhm mhm and it was also wasn't it also a close call with just landing when you were landing on the moon I don't know if it's apocryphal but I always have read that you guys were literally within 30 seconds of running out of fuel so what would have happened then uh well we would there's a button that says abort, in which case the descent and ascent engines light and and you lift off and and uh, maintain thrust. Now there's another button that's also kind of separated it so you won't mistake, and it's called abort stage. So it 
discards the descent stage, lights the ascent stage, and now you depart from wherever you are and intercept the uh, the ascent computer program. Now, just how low uh, you can still do that, I think, is a question of timing of electrical signals getting to to some place to do something, and uh, you just got to rely on somebody having done that that calculation. But of right. course, we we have an idea. Because Charlie Duke, back on Earth in Mission Control, calls out 60 seconds and then 30 seconds, and we're still about 10 feet above the ground, five feet maybe. So we touch down, and this service van with the dipstick comes out and injects the amount of fuel in the tanks. Yes, yes. Interesting. Well, you know, I know that you're a, a hero to a lot of people for two reasons. One, obviously, the work that you've done in space, but also, two, for how candid you were at a time when not a lot of people were about your struggles with depression and alcoholism and everything when you came back. And I wonder what you believe to be the case. Do you believe that that was primarily genetic since you've acknowledged that you know a number of members of your family including your grandfather and and your mother had taken their own lives even before the the time you went to Apollo 11 or do you think that it was brought on as a lot of people like to speculate because you know seeing the earth from the moon uh, or from space makes us feel so you know would make you feel smaller or insignificant or anything like that or, or do you think that's just oh. pop- Pop psychology. I forget what they call it, the, the outer space phenomena. I, I forget, there was a very wise person who came up with a name for it. Uh, but no, 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 I don't really think there was that. Uh, see, before I get into that, let me, let me say a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we keep hearing about policemen and their body cameras. Neil had a body camera that was mounted to the front of his spacesuit so that he could use his hands doing things and still with minimum activity, see what the cameras pointed at. So he he was in a position where I was moving around and he occasionally would be stationary and could take my picture. So, of course, the most famous one uh, was taken very suddenly. Uh, He said, hey, hold it. And I turned and looked at him, and he took that visor picture where the uh, reflections uh, of the spacecraft and his reflection and the shadows now, I got my chance when I had the camera, and I was just fascinated with the boot imprints. And, of course, there was a whole bunch of them around something that we were doing. So I picked a smooth spot and put my foot down and then took a picture of that. 
And I thought, gee, that's kind of lonesome. So put my foot down, then moved the boot just a little bit so you could see the boot that was, that had made, made the, uh, the boot print. So I guess there are kind of two distinctly different photographs that, uh, that characterize Apollo 11. One of them is a boot print and the other is the very beautiful picture that Neil took of me yes. that, that has all the reflections in it and is used um, very famously. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there there is some kind of a frust- frustration in not knowing exactly what to do and feeling confident about moving in that direction, a degree of loneliness and irritation. And once you start down the path of trying to get uh, sober, you find that that's not as easy as you thought, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you get other guys around you to help you and then you begin to accumulate days of sobriety and that becomes uh, like an investment and I've got 41, 42 years invested now amazing, in amazing. sobriety Congratulations! And, uh, really uh, I don't miss anything that is a craving, I recognize what it does. And and it's not what I uh, need to become a part of my my performances anymore. I'm, uh, I'm as proud of that as, <laughs> well, I'm more proud of that than I am how many dollars I've got in my invested accounts. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's all right with you, I, I would like to maybe zoom through if, uh, uh, several just qu- quick things and, uh, and then I'll leave you alone. But uh, I guess, first of all, what's the one question you'd like never to be asked again? <laughs> what did it feel like? <laughs> Everyone feels the need to tell you where they were when you were on the moon. What's the weirdest story that you've heard? Well, I like to get their reaction when I say, well, I know where I was. <laughs> um, what is the best movie about space? Apollo 11. <laughs> Good answer. What do you miss most and least about being in space? You accumulated so many hours there. I wonder, as you think back, what do you miss and what do you definitely not miss? Well, I certainly uh, can't complain about the uh, the liftoff. That's of course, the most hazardous part, considering an engine failure and loss of control, mm-hmm. having a mission that that has a major, significant contribution to advancing space capabilities, and and that's why, oh, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, I began to think of a lunar cycler that would go around the earth, go around the moon and come back and go around the earth and around the moon and just keep going. Mm-hmm. Turns out that 
the orbits of flyby are not not ideal. So I think the Chinese in chasing that are probably a little in error. Now that cycler gave way to a Mars cycler and that one works also, but there are several ways of implementing that and some are a little bit more made difficult by the eccentricity of Mars orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still think that there are ways of of fine tuning the thrust available to make up for that. In the meantime, I am very impressed with Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX mm-hmm. Starship refueling capabilities for going to the moon and going to Mars. He is using uh, methane, which is available at Earth for launch and refueling. And and if it, it's taken to the moon, you can't get the carbon on the moon mm-hmm. and the helium and the oxygen. But at Mars, there's carbon dioxide and there's water. So it's a it's a good choice. And I think uh, Jeff Bezos has the same choice. But I think Elon Musk with his starship is way ahead of Bezos right now. And unfortunately, 15 years ago, or maybe something like that, we got locked into what became Ares 5 and then the Space Launch System, or SLS, and it is continually over budget, over schedule, Mm -hmm. and it is expendable. So it is just a poor investment for a nation that wants to compete with the commercial launches of Bezos and Elon Musk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're reusable fly-again capabilities and couple those with some of the landers and other things. And I I don't become too popular (laughs) when I have joined many others in suggesting that Boeing's rocket is is just not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, I didn't think I could be a bigger admirer of yours until I saw the video on YouTube of of that jerk who was harassing you and kind of implying that you guys had had faked the landing and you you fought back. Uh, and I just wonder how much of that sort of thing do you encounter and how do you explain it? What is wrong with people? Well, I had seen a guy once before, and I guess there are a, a number of uh, wannabes, maybe. When when I spotted en route to the moon a light uh, opposite us moving along in about the same direction, we looked at it through the uh, telescope and then the sextant, and I happened to know or remember that when I was in flight dynamics, I just 
wandered around and saw this chart that portrayed the trajectory that four panels that enclosed the lander. And when the command module separated, those four panels went in four different directions uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. So they're going along right with us. And if you look out a window at the right time, you're just liable to see something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, they become UFOs and <laughs> and, and not, not too distant. Phenomena astronomical unidentified. <laughs> so you, you don't believe in aliens or, or, or do you? I mean, I guess, what is an alien? I guess it could be any form of life anywhere else in the do you think there is anything else out there well i can say it's anybody's guess but that includes an awful lot of people Mm -hmm. Uh, when you get into uh, artificial intelligence and uh and automation that can sense what's going on all around and and has such high degrees of performance I don't say it's highly probable, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but of all the opportunities that exist in the billions and billions and billions of opportunities, somebody's liable to be head and shoulders above everyone else. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are. I don't know how we ever know that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be around when when we really see evidence of one. Yes. Hell, I've seen us land once on the moon. I'm waiting for twice. And, and then this damn COVID-19 came along and screwed us up. Yeah. Yeah, it's been not not helpful. <laughs> so you you said, quote, my proudest moment was when I saluted the American flag on the surface of the moon, close quote. Do you think that that flag that you guys planted there is, is still standing? No. No, I'm quite sure that uh, even some, oh, I forget the name, uh, Lunar Orbiter 10, or something has taken very accurate pictures mm-hmm. of uh, the landing sites, so accurate that you can see the dust kicked up by Neil mm. when he went from the spacecraft back behind us to take a look at the crater. And then when he came back, it was a different pathway. And you can see the uh, sprinkling of the lunar dust that couldn't have been done by anything other than that. Now that certainly is a piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's, that others would indicate that the solar radiation would have had a, a very destructive uh, effect on any, any cloth. Mm-hmm. And were you able to bring back anything from, or, you know, retain anything from the mission? Did you keep your uniform or, or, or rock, you know, or dust or anything from, from the, uh, from the mission? 
well, as I said, that uh, that alternate mission, when there wasn't a problem and we came home as planned, the broken circuit breaker and the felt tip pen mm-hmm. are probably the most meaningful. I have a little ring on my little finger that was my grandfather's uh, Masonic ring. I almost didn't take it, but but I discovered it at the last couple of seconds and got it on my finger before we went out to the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think there are a few other things. I, I'm very uh, concerned that uh, of the valuable, meaningful Omega watches mm-hmm. that Neil did not wear his out on the surface, but left it inside for some reason that didn't make sense to me at the time. Mm -hmm. But I wore mine outside. Mm -hmm. And when we came back, uh, before I moved from Houston to Edwards Air Force Base, I wanted to send a couple of, or a bunch of, high value things to the Smithsonian mm-hmm. and that pen and circuit breaker and watch were among those things. Mm-hmm. And they were last seen laid out on a desk at NASA in Houston and the watch never arrived. Oh no. So somebody has those. Uh, that's terrible. Well, I, I guess I just want to finally ask you because, you know, you it's now been 51 years. Uh, you've seen the, the good, the bad and the ugly that has come with, you know, the 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 trip to the moon. Um, I know that you've said that obviously there were those hard times that came afterwards. I'm sure that fame is not always the most fun thing. But if you could go back in time and and decide whether or not to do it again, would you have preferred to live a more kind of conventional, normal life? Or are you happy with the, with the decisions that you made? Oh, absolutely. Tickle pink to have been in a position to be able to take advantage of, of the things that kind of opened up for me. A lot of, a lot of factors, uh, fed into that. Some of it was my family, my father's uh, pioneering uh, aviation just kind of set the stage. And then he introduced me to uh, Jimmy Doolittle and some other people. And they just kind of uh, evolved to uh, inspire me to to not just be an ordinary person, but to 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 seek out how I could take what I had to offer and uh, and make it meaningful. And over the years, I've found a, a few things. I love to make sketches of orbits, but I don't like to put a lot of words in, in paragraphs and other things. If somebody writes something down, I'll tell them what's wrong, but uh, 
originality of literary and uh, artistic other than just representative. And that's been good enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to to get, get the ideas across. Of course, you get a little irritated when somebody doesn't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I bet. Let, let me give you one other shocking number. Please, yes. Most of us in the space program were military. Mm-hmm. Navy, Marine, Air Force. And we received our normal with rank monthly compensation plus uh, flying time. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that was called hazardous. But that didn't mean it was hazardous. Uh, it just meant it was flying time, four hours a month, uh, going up a little bit more. And if you travel somewhere, you get your travel expenses paid. So being in the Air Force and active duty, as most of the rest of them were, we went on a travel expedition that involved uh, a van to go from the quarters out to the uh, rocket, an elevator, and then a rocket to go all the way to the moon, and then some wheels and walking and other stuff, and then a rocket to come back, and the Navy picked this up, and then we flew in a Air Force airplane back home. Mm-hmm. So that completed our travel. So when I filed that travel voucher claim, it also included a rental car from the airport in Florida to the crew quarters. Mm-hmm. So I got reimbursed $31.33 for going to the moon and back. <laughs> oh, my God. Somehow I had to earn the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad they didn't ask you. I, I assume they didn't ask you for your passport when you got back, right? <laughs> no, we had the clear customs. Did you really? Yeah, we did. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, we, we brought some mineral rocks and hopefully no germs because we were in quarantine for 21 days after we came back. Right, right. Well, I bet you never thought you'd wind up in quarantine again, but here we are. And uh... <laughs> well, I've uh, I've had a number of things, like the end of World War One. My father flew the Hindenburg over to Germany, and then it burned out on the way back. As a teenager during World War Two, and uh, Hiroshima fought in the Korean War. Uh, skip Vietnam because of space mm-hmm. and then stumbled the rest of my way getting all the help I could mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and writing books and spreading myself around and I guess helping people. Absolutely. Somehow I missed that milestone in life called retirement <laughs> and vacation. 
<laughs> no golf for you, right? No golf. No golf. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoy yourself uh, however you see fit. And um, we're just so lucky to have have you. And And I thank you so much for your service and for doing this. It's just a real honor to get to speak with you. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free and leave us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash awards chatter. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, Thanks for joining us.